Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask big questions about our politics and occasionally come away with some answers. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest, Stephen Tellis, who is a professor of political science in the the Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at Niskanen, and has just written a very interesting book with Rob Seldon at the University of Montana. The book is called Never Trump, and it's a a great book for our podcast because it asks really interesting questions about political parties and networks within them. And uh, Steve has a really provocative argument in this book that the Never Trump movement is uh, actually the uh, vanguard, perhaps, of a new emergent faction in American politics. So uh, we're going to talk about that. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm James Walner, a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an Associate Professor at Marquette University and a blogger at the Mistress of Faction. And Steve? I am the uh, senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, and during the day, I am a professor of political science at the Johns Hopkins University. So, Steve, if I'm correct in uh, taking away the, the key provocative point of your book, it's arguing that the Never Trump movement is... Uh, the vanguard of perhaps a new emergent moderate faction uh, in the Republican Party. And it's the first step towards uh, moving us towards uh, perhaps a more factionalized party system that might ultimately scramble uh, the current hyperpolarization. Is that is that a fair characterization? Well, uh, sort of. Um, All right. I mean, one thing that, that your uh, that your listeners may uh, not get is most of this book is not argument driven, right? Um, right? What we tried to do in most of this book was to give an account of the motivations and actions of the um, conservatives, Republicans who uh, opposed Trump, right? Who in that sense, right, opposed the nominee of their own party, right? That from, I think, a political science point of view is the big interesting point about the largely descriptive work that's in this book. And we organized it uh, largely by profession. We think we have a theory about what party is and what kind of actors are partisan, where they operate here. Um, And so most of the book is doing that. And then in the conclusion, we um, did some speculation about what would happen to these uh, these actors. Would they just drift off into the ether, into irrelevance, or um, would something more substantive happen with them? Um, so it's important to recognize that that last part is entirely speculative. Um, in some sense, it's not primarily driven by the empirical material before. And we are very careful not to state this as a prediction. And I think this is one thing where we might want to get into a slightly wonky question about what it is political science does. Um, Most political scientists think their job is prediction, and they think the measure of their success um, is whether is the effectiveness of their prediction. Um, And I do think there's a little bit of an inside baseball political science here. Both Rob Saldine and I We're both trained at University of Virginia with people like James Caesar. And so I think we have a little bit more skepticism um, of social science's capacity for prediction. And we also present this, um, the hypothesis you've referred to 
really as a scenario rather than a prediction um, because I think it depends on the conscious strategic action of um, actors themselves. I, we think, I think that there's a little more play in the joints of politics in which um, agential action can actually be consequential, at least in the long term. So I think we think that there's a reason to think that there's a factional potential in our system um, that depending on the what I've called in previous work, political investment um, of actors can actually uh, bring that potential to the surface. But that's different, I think, in some important ways from calling that a prediction, if that makes sense. Wow. It's almost as if we are free human beings who can do things. It's amazing that political scientists have forgotten this. Yeah. I mean, so in the end of my um, book, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement, available in all better bookstores, um, we, I have a little discussion in the last paragraph that sort of gets at this point, uh, which is kind of the old structure agency question. Um, and I say, at any one time, the constraints of an existing regime can seem crushing and inescapable, um, but the constraints and structures of any particular period are often the creation of a previous generation's political agents. Um, so if you think about structure, as in part created by agents in previous periods, um, then you can think about actors as having an agential potential if they're investing in the structure that they're going to face in the future. Um, and that's, I think, the way that we think about the way that structure and agency relate, uh, relate. as opposed to if you just thought that everything was all structure, then you really could make predictions without having to think about agents is having consequential actions they can make in the present. All right. So, so this is a really interesting idea that people actually matter. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little more. Uh, to, be just kind of, to, to be determined. To be determined. To be determined. It could be a whole series. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the book, but just to, to kind of, in the, in the spirit of having a little bit of a, of a debate, I just want to get us all on the record to take positions whether whether we think this scenario has any plausibility and I'll I'll confess that that I'm somewhat skeptical given the broad trends of nationalization and closely held elections that we could see an emergent faction uh, like the never Trump movement but but I'm certainly interested in the idea and I want to D- debated and hear a little bit more about it, uh, and then. But first, I want to talk about the book. But first, before that, I want to hear what James and Julia think about the potential for this. Julia, yeah. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that this is um, there's potential for a faction here. I'm, you know, my thinking on this is shaped in part by all the research that that Steve and Rob did for this book, um, but also I think again, sort of my position in the world, I interact with a lot of young conservatives um, as a college professor, and my, my campus is mixed, so I interact with a lot of students of a variety of uh, political persuasions. And some of them are are pretty pro-Trump, but especially, I remember teaching in, you know, in the spring of 2016, there was a lot of skepticism among younger people about Trump and certainly you you know I live in a place where the the 16 primary was um, an example of some successful coordination among establishment Republicans particularly some of the um, talk radio people that Steve, Steve talks about so I see some of the raw material there in um, 
in individuals who have the potential to be pretty influential, but I think factions are really difficult. And one piece of wisdom from one of the, the best books on Congress and factions that I've, I've read, um, Ruth Block Rubin's Building the Block, she talks about how common ideological or regional or any kind of interests are not enough to form a, a faction. So I guess I would say I think there's potential, but but factions are hard. And I have questions about the way in which the 2020 primaries have gone down and the, you know, the, the cancellation of those primaries and the absence of an emergent challenger, even a symbolic one to President Trump. So that's my, um, that's my, that's my prior. James? Yeah, I think this is a great question. I think this is a great topic. And I think it's, a, and from what I can tell, I haven't in full disclosure read the book yet, but it looks like a great book and I'm looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of Steve's work. I typically view the Never Trump music, uh, movement as a kind of a small diminishing group of intellectuals, much like you do, Lee. But I also want to add one caveat, which is that the Never Trump movement itself, uh, I think it matters how we think about it more broadly. And I think it matters how we situate it in time. And if you think about Trump as a, a new phenomenon, I think we can isolate it and think about it just in terms of never Trump. If you think about Trump as a continuation of uh, kind of more populist type politics, going back to Pat Buchanan, if not before, I think you can begin to see certain amount, certain trends uh, in the reactions to uh, of, of elites to certain parts of the conservative movement. I mean, we can go back to the John Birch Society in, in Buckley to get some idea of how this all plays out. And I think that really explains, uh, it doesn't explain in, to the extent that we think of prediction, but it th I think it helps us better understand why you see uh, people like Trump crop up from time to time. And I think it helps to explain the reaction of certain elites uh, to those people when they do crop up. And so, but but overall, I tend to look at it as a, a small diminishing group of intellectuals. So I think let's take this opportunity to, we all, we all have some questions for you, Steve, about the, about the book and want to give you a chance to kind of explore some of the, the key themes before we debate this point a little bit more to situate this question in context. So James, you want to get started with some questions for Steve? Yeah, sir. Um, and Steve, I think the, the best question is, you know, if you could just share with our listeners, with us, uh, how you see the Never Trump movement. And again, you know, and I guess to add to that, uh, to what extent is Trump himself a new phenomenon in your view? Or to what extent can we trace him back to Pat Buchanan and others? And and how does it, if we can do that, how does that then inform our understanding of this so-called never Trump movement? Or am I wrong to link those two things together? Yeah, so it's, uh, this is actually an interesting question. There's a bunch of questions all on the table now. So I'll see if I can, uh, I can hit them all. Um, one is I'm teaching a class now on the development of the American conservative movement that sort of incorporates political science, sociology, history. Um, and I've been thinking about this question, right? And it's a little bit of a problem in teaching conservatism now, like everything has to all lead up to Trump, right? You have to have a account of everything that happened in which Trump is the telos. Um, and I don't know that in five years we'll necessarily feel like that's the way all of our accounts of history have to go down, but it is now. Um, 
And in that context, one way to think about Trump is uh, in terms of suppressed demand. Uh, and when I look at this, it does look like um, a lot of what was being supplied by the Republican elites, um, which are the subject that I have, um, was not necessarily just a response to what uh, the public was demanding, um, especially when you look at areas like foreign policy or economics. Um, these particular actors, what I call, I wouldn't call them intellectuals. Some of them are intellectuals, but I think they're more professional service providers. Uh, and that's how, again, when I go back to our theory of party and the theory of party that I've developed in other work, um, you really want to think about parties not just as collections of uh, policy high demanders in the UCLA school or coalitions of ambitious office seekers, because American political parties now have to do, you know, very extensive, highly professionalized tasks. Uh, they have, you know, running uh, elections is a highly professionalized task. Um, running government, uh, at least in a normal administration, is usually a highly professionalized task requiring lots of people with specific skills and relationships and networks. And those actors are part of the party too, in the sense that they're providing professional services and can't be easily replaced with, uh, with somebody else. Um, and that position gave them a fairly uh, high degree of leverage in the Republican Party to give Republican Party voters what those people wanted them to have rather than what they, not, they might have asked for. And so one way to think about Trump is, Trump was going around those professional service providers. He had a theory that at least a lot to them didn't really have hard power. They had power because people perceived them as having power, um, or they had rituals of how you run for president that gave them power and authority. And so in some sense, what Trump, you know, again, his superpower is having a really deep sense of who really, really has power and who doesn't. And Trump sort of saw through that and saw, saw that you could actually give voters exactly what they wanted. And Trump's basic package really was what Republican voters wanted, as opposed to um, the previous kind of conservative fusionist orthodoxy. Uh, so in that sense, right, the Trump, uh, the never Trumpers, as I understand it, and again, this is, you know, looking at them not as a group in the electorate, which is a separate question, but looking at them as a particular cadre inside of um, the Republican Party, they really were, in a way, the ancien regime, right? They were the regime that Trump was trying to displace um, and govern without. Uh, and so it's not a surprise that they opposed Trump because Trump was fairly clear that he wanted to diminish their status and authority and, and in a way, transform the Republican Party into some other kind of thing. Now, there's a question about whether you can, in fact, you know, govern and get elected and do all those things without this professional service cadre. And I don't think Trump has really developed one of his own. And in a way, COVID-19 is a kind of test of whether you can actually govern without a, um, a well-developed professional service cadre. Um, let me just follow up real quick, jumping out of line here, just on that point and to think about it in terms of elections and to narrow it, uh, to focus our um, attention narrowly on Republican office holders. And one thing I'm curious about is the extent to which they thought that Trump's victory 
would harm their individual ability to be elected and then harm the party's ability to win the presidency and to control majorities in Congress. And I think if we think of it in those terms, what you see is their sudden reversal, where you have people like John Thune a couple of weeks before the the Republican whip in the United States Senate now, the number two position in leadership, a couple of weeks before the election, calling on his nominee to step down from the race. And then once the election's over, once it's clear that Trump won and he is the president, John Thune switches very aggressively. And I'm wondering, is that because the threat that Thune thought Trump posed, not to his policy views, but to his electoral chances and his party's electoral chances, that threat's now gone. So therefore, there's no more reason for him to oppose the president. And you can think of people like Mitch McConnell in private. You can think of people like John Cornyn. There's a whole number of people that we can all name who switched their positions uh, very dramatically once Trump won. Yeah, so... I think it's really important. We do try and stress this in the book um, that the, uh, the, the you know the category of elected and the category of party service providers are really distinct kinds of people with distinct kind of motivations. Um, and the important thing to know about elected is you know almost everybody believed at the time that Trump was going to lose and was going to lose big. This was really the th- you know and. Um, and in a way, one thing I would suggest is this was sort of denying the uncertainty that in fact was present in this situation, that having a nominee like Trump trying to put together an election the way he was running against a candidate like Hillary Clinton was not really a situation in which past experience was very useful at um, giving us accurate predictions of what was going to happen. But people are uncomfortable with uncertainty. They like risk um, as distinct from uncertainty. And they tried to resolve that uncertainty through a general belief that um, that Trump was going to lose and was going to lose big. Um, and a lot of the theory of at least the elected never Trumpers was that by doing the kind of actions that Thune was doing, he would be able to come in as sort of the clean team after and fumigate the place and um, and uh, be able to distinguish himself from Trump. Because what people didn't want is Trump to lose and then go down with the ship. So for, for you know, for elected, associating themselves with never Trump was a way they thought of, um, you know, attaining some sort of hygiene where Trump was concerned when he lost. Now, I think that's a very different set of motivations for most of the never Trump people. We have a little few examples in the book of people who were much more strategic and opportunistic, um, and who were taking that position because they thought it was uh, advantageous for them in terms of their own power. But I think uh, more of the opposition of this extended party network was not really driven just by the assumption that Trump was going to lose. That was a useful argument to make. With people who, for you know, who weren't necessarily as ideologically opposed to Trump as they were, but I don't think that was the real underlying motivation for them. So I do think it's worth thinking a little bit in terms of heterogeneous motivations of these different classes of party actors. Julia, yeah, I have a a lot of uh, a lot of questions to ask, but I guess one of the ones that I want to pick up on that kind of that picks up on um, what. You all were just talking about with regard to this perception that Trump was going to lose, and that he was an electoral liability, has to do with um, the role of 
Republican women, which doesn't seem to be a huge part of the the book, um, you quoted, there's a conservative jurist saying, I wanted to kind of give cover to young conservative women. But I kind of remember, like, I, I, in some ways, I'm asking you to put your book in conversation with some of the more popular pieces that have come out about this. So I remember this section in, um, in Tim Alberta's American Carnage, um, about the, I think this plays a role in, in, uh, Woodward's book also, the, you know, the release, the late release of the Access Hollywood tape and this notion that Trump is real, and that, you know, it's not even, you refer to the, you know, his comments about Megyn Kelly from the first debate, right, in, um, in 2015, the first Republican debate, the sense that part of, part of this liability, and this is a way in which I think some of the some of the motivations that you're talking about merge together, right? It's like by making these kinds of comments and holding these kinds of views and having this kind of, um, of electronic trail of, of statements, this candidate was pursued, Trump is perceived as being both elect, an electoral liability, but also kind of philosophical one, right? A threat to the party's sense of integrity about it itself. Um, and I do remember, you know, hearing a lot about this, both in October of 2016, prior to the election, but also at, you know at various different points throughout the Trump presidency, that he's he's unpopular with Republican women, that moderate Republican women are going to, and this often has a sort of saviorish language, right? They're going to save the country, they're going to save the party. Um, so I'm curious if that if that just didn't come up in your in your research, or you think that that's that ki- those kinds of claims and those kinds of distinctions are overblown? Um, where does where does that fit in? Well, again, I, I think it's really important to distinguish between who you're talking about. Um, that is, there were, you know, a significant number of um, never Trump women, and they play a role in the book. You know, Mindy Finn uh, was very important on the sort of um, political prose side, um, and there's others uh, throughout the book, Mona Charon, and a bunch, of, and you know, um, and but you know, it didn't come up in most of their interviews. Right. The thing that, you know, especially a number of them, you know, strongly emphasize, for example, religion. Um, a lot of never Trumpers were Jews. Um, again, there were a lot of never Trumpers who weren't Jews, but there were a lot of uh, but a very large percentage of them were. And that came up very strongly. People really talked about their identity and how their identity mattered and how they processed this situation through a kind of communal history. Right. There are lots of Mormons, um, not just Mitt Romney. Right. Uh, who were uh, opposed to Trump, and I have a theory about that in the book. But the gender stuff really didn't come up, at least among my respondents. Now, I think it's obviously very important in the broader electorate. Um, Trump, you know, you know, reminds lots of women of their first husband, um, and I think that's a really non, you know, that's a that's a non-trivial fact, um, and it does provide to go back to one of the, I think uh, Julia's point earlier, right, that if you think about a non-Trumpy faction, um, there's a lot of resources sort of sitting around for somebody to do something with. Um, And it's not really just about Trump, but the sort of overall approach of the sort of dominant Trump faction um, definitely has a, uh, a strongly male and you could even argue misogynistic kind of quality to it, at least a lot of the um, the sort of, uh, you know, trolls and uh, under undergrowth in that movement is very strongly connected to that. Um, 
And so I think there's definitely in the broader public, um, there are resources um, there, but it wasn't really the thing that came up in my, uh, my interviews. Can I ask and, my, and Rob's as well. Can I ask a, a follow? This has more to do with the sort of broader party dynamics, um, because as as I'm reading this, particularly I think as I was sort of reading it for looking for who the who the women were in this conversation and and the women that you talked about, also Jennifer Rubin, the columnist at the Washington Post, it occurred to me that there, are, you know, but on the other hand, you do actually see a very strong, you do see a strong segment of kind of women for Trump, and it, my understanding of this, this is, I'm actually remembering, there's a line in Ezra Klein's book, which I was also reading over the weekend, that basically says the gender gap in 2016 and the general electorate was quite similar to what it was in, in 2012 and 2008, or it was a little bigger. Um, but I see this as, as potentially kind of a story about party elites also, right? That And that's, that's who you're writing about, obviously, but there's a sort of difference between women that you, that you refer to who are talking about their position as um, as party leaders. And then, you know, so I, I want to build that out from the gender point into a broader point, which is what do we do with parties where the main division is between establishment and not, where there's substantial divisions between people with college degrees and people without, you know, between people who can make outsider claims and people who can't. What, you know, what do we do with that kind of political party? Yeah, well, again, one way to think about this is to go back to the sort of Grossman and Hopkins asymmetric uh, parties stuff. Um, and to note, right, that again, especially if you think about factional division in the parties, that um, that's going to look different in the two parties. Uh, I, my assumption is that, again, a future factionalized party system is also not going to have be one in which the Republican and Democrats look the same. My assumption is the Democratic establishment is going to be the majority. Um, now that's again because in part because of just how that coalition is composed, um, that you're going to have a fairly ideological minority um, more on the extreme. That's a sort of a Democratic Socialist faction uh, on the left of the party faced with a, a larger establishment coalition closer to the center. And that's what you, I think you saw in the primaries, a pretty good evidence of where those power dynamics are in the, in the Democratic Party. On the Republican Party, I think there's a good argument that you're going to see a more or less populist uh, dominant faction in the Republican Party and the elite or establishment or, um, or upper middle class sort of faction is going to be the minority faction. Um, that is the faction with most of the expertise and professional authority. Um, and that's going to have a different geographic base than the majority of the party. But that majority part of the party, the populist part of the party, won't be able to effectively govern without um, support from that uh, minority, and it'll have to negotiate with them. So that's part of my assumption is how that's going to going to work. Um, uh, is that those there there are going to be different sort of class and professional dynamics in that sort of factional conflict within the two parties. I want to ask a question, um, and it, it's really a question about 
how we should think about political parties. Because one of the things that I really liked about this book is that it focuses on people and it situates people in professional networks and it gives people complex motives and uh, principles too. So if if we take those as as realities, how does that change how we should think about political parties and how does it potentially go up against other theories of political parties that political scientists have used, such as uh, you mentioned the UCLA school uh, or, or coalitions of electeds? How would political parties, how would our theories of political parties look different if we treated them as as collections of of people within networks with different points of leverage. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, thank things. That's a good way to put it. Um, and one one problem again I have with any of these theories that sort of absolutize a thing about what a party actually is. They're a little too metaphysical for my uh, taste, right? I mean, parties have to do a bunch of different things simultaneously. Um, and which of those dominates depends on the domain in which partisan action is occurring, right? Is it elections? Is it legislation? Is it operating the administrative state? All of those things draw in different elements of party and partisanship. Um, and again, I, 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 the more I think about it, the more I think Julia's, um, earlier point about thinking about um, resources is is a useful way to think about this. That is, you know, what parties are, who has power, um, who's able to exercise leverage is in part a consequence of organization. Um, who actually takes those resources that are out there in the environment, who can recognize them as resources, uh, who can sort of knit them together into um, structures that allow them to exercise power, to engage strategically, to do all of those things, um, in the end, determines at least at the margin who actually has power in what domain. And so in that sense, right, individuals matter because they're the ones who make those strategic decisions. They're the ones who make decisions about um, where to deploy resources. They're the ones who decide whether or not to put their energies into actually organizing citizens or, you know, just into doing, you know, polls and ads and, um, and going on CNN. And all of that is, again, consequential, strategically determined action that is less consequential in the immediate present but often, again, if we think about this in investment terms, can be consequential in the future. So the larger way I'm thinking about, about this, right, is a lot of those, re you know, the resources that are out there in the world are in part structurally determined, right? So again, to go back to Julia's students at, uh, at Marquette, um, there are a lot of, you know, Trumpy students, and there are people who are providing services to them. If you think about Turning Point, um, you know, that's that somebody recognized that there were a bunch of, um, you know, of students like that out there who had lots of grievance against liberalism and who would be very happy to throw their bodies up against the, um, the forces of the liberal establishment. Um, you know, if you think about all of Julia's students who 
aren't sort of down with that, who are on the conservative side that have a different kind of orientation, there's not much providing them service. There's not much providing them organizations to slot into and connect into something larger. And I think that is consequential, right? Not every opportunity that's available in the environment is actually exploited. And that's a function of who's actually recognizing opportunities, who's investing in them. And in particular, right, you know, the people who have money, um, what do the people who have money in this world um, think is an important thing to put their resources into? Do they just put it into short-term electioneering or do they put it into long-term organization? And the history of the right is a lot, at least the history I've told, is a lot about putting energy into um, activities that are only going to have a payoff later on. I have a book on the conservative legal movement that talks about this in the Federalist Society. Um, a lot of the benefits of the Federalist Society were decades after the original investments. So I think you can think about parties and who has power in um, political parties, who's able to exercise influence as a consequence of decisions made by different actors, often operating under limited information um, that then have uh, long-term payoffs. But let, let, let me push you on that for a second, which is, I mean, that certainly resources matter, but is there something about the emotional resonance of different ideas that also matters? And I mean, one, one theory about why Trump won is that he just channeled a sort of visceral anger and rage and xenophobia uh, that is just quite widespread among a, a certain part of the Republican electorate. And he also channeled the, the strength of strong partisanship, uh, but weak ideological commitment. So that you could say, well, we, we just need to invest more resources in classical liberal ideology that's more moderate, uh, but the emotional pull of that is somewhat limited and it really only appeals to a, a very small percentage of voters in the electorate. And that what Trump intuited was this sort of visceral conflict-oriented owning the libs kind of style of politics that is just dominant among Republican voters. And it doesn't matter how much resource, I mean, certainly the George, uh, the Jeb Bush campaign had plenty of resources and, and yet was reduced to asking for, for applause and this famous please clap line. So I, I wonder where the emotions and of politics and the, the strength of partisanship and the way that our parties are organized around these intense culture war issues fits into uh, a story about mobilizing resources and organization. Yeah, so look, I mean, I do think that um, it is the case that Trump recognized that that sort of emotional register was available in a way that other politicians did not. Now, again, I think about that also as a kind of resource, right? It's a thing that you're able to mobilize that will give you, um, will give you leverage. Um, now, I don't know that that particular thing was entirely determined to um, uh, that demand, you can say, was necessarily matched up with only one kind of supply of the kind that Trump did. And I think one thing we might see in the future is actors looking for different ways to um, tap into that, uh, that kind of appeal. And I do think 
one thing to recognize is, and again, this is something where Lee and I might disagree, but I do think a lot of that intense emotional negative partisanship, partisanship really is a consequence of the absence of factional conflict inside the parties, right? A, a world in which you have factional conflict is also one in which you're going to have um, strange bedfellows coalitions between factions across parties. And in that world, you're going to think about the people on the other side as not just an enemy to be defeated, but often a resource that you're going to need to uh, draw upon to attain, attain your ends. And that can to somewhat attenuate that negative partisanship. Now, I know Lee would like to deal with that by having multiple parties and having multiple parties with shifting coalitions would also tend to um, make those smaller, more you know, opportunistic parties think about the other parties as resources and not just as enemies. Now we have a, I think, just a, you know, a, a difference at the margin about which of those is most is most likely. Um, but I think the important point is that that resource of sort of the emotional register. Um, is something that can be exploited in multiple different ways. Um, and it is also the case, I think, that a lot of the, you know, the voters that Trump needed at the margin were not people who necessarily were going at that register, right? They were voters. Again, we refer to uh, Milan Slowlik's uh, work in the book that um, one of the challenges of uh, partisanship is as the parties get further and further apart, you have to pay more and more for supporting basic democratic norms. And so I do think the voters who are at the margin really were not what, what we usually think of as sort of resentful, working class white Trump voters, the ones everybody wants to see, right? A lot of those were fairly normal Republican voters who at the margin were trying to decide whether or not they could hold their nose um, and vote for Trump or whether it was just too much to ask for. And some of those, I think there's an argument, those are the kind of voters who were defecting in 2018, including a lot of the women that Julia was talking about. So I, I think you can overstate to some degree the importance of uh, and how general that sort of emotional, resentful, negative partisanship register is. And how much um, simply the the you know the perceived distance of the parties from one another, uh, and how that ends up you know causing people to do actions that they themselves find somewhat repulsive, uh, including voting for Trump. Yeah, I think this is a great. I, I really appreciate this take on politics and parties here because I think what it does is it draws our attention to the. The inherent messiness of politics, and right now, as you said, there is a tendency to to put everything in their in this clear polarized category of us versus them. And i I think this I think this book, I think the concept of Never Trump, uh, ch challenges that uh, view, that polarized view of the world. But one thing I just want to touch on very quickly is the similarity I see between the Never Trump movement and some of its most outspoken um, adherents or members and the people that they criticize, and particularly Trump. And if you think about people like Elliot Cohen, who wrote a piece in The Atlantic in early 2018, and he, you know, I think he, he describes Trump as dumb, vicious, lecherous, and unsuccessful. 
He calls him a, a contemptible president. He says there's nothing admirable about him. And he says that no enduring good can come of him. And he calls the people that support him cowards and opportunists. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Trump. And it, it seems to me that one of the things that the Never Trump movement criticizes Trump for is by drawing a narrow circle around his allies and saying anyone outside of that can't participate in politics. But then you see the Never Trump movement doing the exact same thing. And I, I don't know what your take is on that, Steve, but the, that's one of the areas, and I see this with Democrats as well, the way in which we conduct our politics today seems to be pretty similar across ideologies, across parties, across factions within parties. And that really is stark to me. And I don't know, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, one of the, you know, the dangers, right, the, of, uh, of Trump is that um, he tends to lower the tenor of everyone who interacts with him, right? Um, and that in part is his strategy. His strategy is um, to uh, to make everyone operate at the sub same level of blood sport that he's at. Um, and that's where, you know, I, I was a bit of a impeachment skeptic um, because I worried that it was uh, that that strategy was in some sense and, you know, what Trump wanted, right? He wanted that, you know, everything oriented toward him, um, toward, and again, I think, especially for the never Trumpers, a lot of them, it was less ideological in some of those cases as more as just literal repulsion at Trump. Um, and part of that was, again, we, we discussed this in the book and we discussed uh, my old advisor, Jim Caesar's analysis of um, political parties and presidential selection that um, a lot of the founders of the American party system thought what they were trying to do was create an institution that could protect the system from demagoguery. Um, and a lot of these people, I think Elliot is a good example, right, genuinely saw in Trump that core threat to constitutional democratic government um, and responded as such, right? And I think they were offended that other people couldn't see what they could see. And I think that's a lot of the phenomenon you see around Trump um, and why it registers such a huge sort of emotional response in people is that literally they think that they can't imagine how somebody else could see the world differently than they do, especially where in Trump, they see something that seems so obviously demagogic um, and constitutionally dangerous. Um, and the other thing to really remember about this is, the other thing that, that you know, when, when James was talking about, you know, that quote from Elliot, you know, we were talking about his supporters. By, by that, Elliot didn't mean their supporters out there in the electorate when he was talking about them as being cowards, right? He was talking about um, core Republican activist organizers, including some of the people who are in Elliot's own foreign policy orbit. And that's because I think at least people like Elliot had a theory of their part of the party, that extended party network, that they were supposed to act as a kind of filtration device against demagoguery. And I think they were offended that other people weren't willing to do, um, to, uh, to take on that role. And that's, so I think that explains a lot of that, what James is talking about, about that tenor. In some sense, you know, Trump has that effect of pulling everyone down to his level. Julia? Yeah, this is um, this has been really enlightening. My, I guess my final comment. I want to go back to what Steve said in the beginning about how all of our stories have Trump as the as the telos, and this is sort of teach to the moment of uh, 
of Trump or right to the moment of Trump. And I certainly teach that way. Um, and in my party's class, I, I end with this sort of question about is Trump a growth, an out, a natural outgrowth of directions in the Republican Party or not? Is this sort of an aberration? And I pose the same question to my students in American presidency in the context of looking at governance. And I get very different answers depending on whether we look at at the politics of the rise of Trump or at the at the sort of con- and this is pre COVID at the con- at the concrete governance outcomes of the administration. And I think that 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 tension is an interesting one. And I'll be thinking about that when I go back to this book and possibly I think maybe teach it next time I teach political party. Yeah, I think for me, uh, out of this conversation, I. I you know, really want want to think more about the role of individual actors within networks. And I mean, I think the the sort of uh, longstanding conventional view that, that I've had about parties is some a result of some sort of vector of, of different interests with, you know, different resources, but maybe that, you know, that there's more contingency, uh, to how those uh, how those different actors compete for supremacy uh, within within a party? Yeah, I think that the ongoing theme, certainly in the way in which I see politics, is very similar. I think it aligns with a lot of this conversation, and I think it challenges a lot of the social science out there and how people approach social science. And that is that man doesn't behave; man acts. I think ultimately that's a very important thing to keep in mind. And politics, especially in a free country like the United States, is about agency. It's, and certainly, there are things that influence that agency and shape how we see the world and shapes our behavior. But ultimately, I think it's important to keep in the back of our mind that agency is is the is very important. And, and if we don't recognize it and we don't recognize the potential of it, then we lose sight of political activity, of politics itself and its possibility. Steve? Yeah. And again, I think the, the important point there is that precisely what agents are trying to do are create structures that then bias political action in the future in their direction. That is, they're trying to create structures. Um, and so in the present, we often see those structures and think of them as being the determinative factor in politics without often having an account of where that structure came from, which is the thing that leads us to agency. So I think it's important to think of not think about those as really rival ways to analyze politics, but as a woven together um, and, and see them as sort of, um, uh, you know, inter- interrelating and, and sort of mutually causing one another to give a full account of how you get big, large change in American yeah. politics. So, I mean, and that really, you know, I think, takes me back to a key Sh- Sh- Schneiderian uh, insight, which is that the, the most important game in politics is deciding what game we're actually playing, that structuring the choices is the, the most important uh, way in which individuals exercise power. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Steve. This was great. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me and and happy to come back on. So I think I want to wrap here with the three of us. Steve had to leave to go teach a class, but to kind of ask this this final question, uh, which is the question that to me is the provocative conclusion 
of the book, which is that maybe this never Trump movement could be the vanguard of a new faction in Republican politics. And, you know, I confess that, you know, I, I, I've come to it with a with a bit of skepticism because I think that the uh, close competition of American elections doesn't really make space for dissenting factions. And I, I don't really see how any faction now would gain a foothold with the nationalization of politics and parties organized around the, these sort of zero-sum culture war issues. But, you know, I, I think talking to, to Steve and interrogating him uh, gave me a, a kind of new appreciation for the contingencies in politics and the way in which, you know, things can uh, change quite quickly uh, and the role that individual organizations and networks can play in, in creating big changes. So I think I'm a little bit more open to that idea, though I, I remain skeptical. James? Yeah, I think that I like the approach. I like the way of thinking about parties as a bunch of different people who oftentimes disagree. I think that's the accurate view. I'm, As you know, I'm a skeptic of this kind of conventional wisdom on polarization. But one thing that's remarkable to me that that really jumps out, I mean, we spent a lot of time discussing the motivations that, that people in the Never Trump movement have, how they see the world. But one of the things I, I tried to touch on at the very end there, and, and one of the things that I find fascinating is the extent to which uh, Never Trumpers conduct their politics very much like the people that they are denouncing. And it reminds me, I found this uh, quote from Livy that that I think is very spot on here, where he says, quote, true moderation in the defense of political liberties is indeed a difficult thing. Pretending to want fair shares for all, every man raises himself by depressing his neighbor. Our anxiety to avoid oppression leads us to practice it ourselves. The injustice we repel, we visit in turn on others as if there were no choice except either to do it or to suffer it. And I think this is the never Trumpers are doing the things that they accuse Trump and his closest allies of doing, and that is delegitimizing their opponents. And I think both sides have lost sight to the extent that they are correct in how they portray their opponents. They've lost sense of what politics is all about. It's about a space in which people act to achieve their goals. And if we can't have action in the institutions that are created by the Constitution for politics, then I'm not sure what we're all doing here. I mean, that's the whole point of the Congress. That's the whole point of the separation of powers. That's the whole point of things like federalism. It's for there to be disagreement. And I'm not, it's, I think I'm very worried by this trend in our politics whereby we see the only way to prevail is by delegitimizing the people with whom we disagree. Yeah, so I want to I want to touch very briefly on a couple of things that this made me think about. And some of them are are uh ongoing uh discussions I've had with you, Lee. I don't know if you remember this. This was this is actually like exactly 2 years ago um when I came in and gave a, a talk um on the hill about at that point very new work on weak parties and strong partisanship and you were sort of my uh MC and introduced me and stuff and we we kind of, um, I think, got into it about the the nature of, of party stagnation. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about as I think about weak parties and strong partisanship and specifically about both the weight that partisanship exerts on the whole system, but also the way in which 
what I expressed earlier, that it's very challenging for factions to form and really do anything. And that, I think, makes our parties very stagnant. But at the, we're at a moment that obviously none of us have captured in any of our written, you know, printed work. Um, we're at a moment where we might really be facing some change. And I wonder if there are opportunities for that. And so this will be, I mean, the next year or so, and maybe even the next election cycle will be an interesting, um, I mean, the sort of, you know, 2022, 2024 election cycles will be an interesting test case of the way in which potentially never Trumpers or some other faction within the Republican Party might be able to take advantage of that of that opportunity of his sort of dissatisfaction with the, the Trump status quo that I think is, is likely to obtain in the country. The other thing where I've had some disagreements with you in the past, Lee, I think is, is with the notion of moderatism. And I, I had meant to actually ask Steve about that and I never had a chance. So maybe I'll, I'll have a chance to read the book more carefully and then um, talk to him about it. But I, I just I question this notion that the that being moderate is always what you want. And I understand why that's a useful framework to talk about the Trump situation in the Republican Party, but I don't I think it has a couple gaps. And and one is that the ideological map is not is not obvious um within the Republican Party at that moment. But the other speaks to this notion that this kind of centrist, middle way, Washington consensus of both parties didn't speak to a lot of people in the electorate. And that, you know, and we have talked about this. I think maybe we do agree more on this one. Lee is a, the, the notion that that um, creates a kind of fertile ground for populism. So I've, I'm thinking about those things. And the thing that I think that where Steve's book is most challenging to the one that the work that I'm working on on parties is, is how seriously he takes the notion of resources. Whereas my work has sort of um, downplayed the importance of, of capacity and resources and is much more vested in the kinds of um, legitimacy that parties have and the leverage that they have. And leverage is obviously linked up with capacity, but I see them as, as separate. So I'm going to have to think a lot harder about that. And that's how this, this conversation, this book has pushed my thinking a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, one thing that I thought that was an interesting uh, and provocative point is, you know, that Steve made was that the resources might not matter in the short term, but they matter in the long term. And I, I guess we'll see how that plays out. I mean, certainly the, the idea that uh, Trump won without most of the conventional resources and remade the entire party, uh, to me, calls the question of resources in, into into question. And I think, you know, would certainly support your point, Julia, that legitimacy matters more than resources. And also the point that I was trying to make about the emotional resonance of politics and the psychological partisan aspects of it. Uh, but as always, these are uncertain questions in uncertain times. And that's why we're here. Absolutely. To add more uncertainty. To confound. Absolutely. All right. Well, we will confound you. Tune yes. In yes. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.